Good afternoon. We're going to try to uh, be live tonight. We'll see if the internet holds up. We are still in chapter 4 of Revelation. We're on verse 6. So that's where we'll take up this evening with a little bit of a summary on what we learned last week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity to come into your house to worship, to praise, and to honor your name. Lord, we ask that you'll move and that you'll touch here this day. Lord, that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth your message. And Lord, that you'll anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Last week we got started in chapter 4. Who knows, we might be able to finish chapter 4 tonight. That would be a record, one chapter in two weeks. But we was we started in the throne room. We're still in the throne room. And we saw an image of what John, or how John described God. Well, tonight we're going to take, and, and the four and twenty elders, but tonight we're going to look around the room. John's going to describe how the room looks to him, and we're going to try to interpret it correctly, of course, but so that we can understand in today's world what this means. Chapter 4, verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes, before and behind. In 1 Kings 7, 23 through 26, we read of a brass or a brazen sea, often called the molten sea. And he made a molten sea, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. It was round all about, and his height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits to compass it round about. And under the brim of it round about, there were knobs compassing it, 10 in a cubit, compassing the sea round about, the knobs were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood upon twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, and three looking toward the west, and three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. And the sea was set upon them, and all their hinder parts were inward, and it was an handbreadth thick, and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim in a cup with flowers of lilies. It contained 2,000 baths. A bath is approximately 6.6 .6 gallons. So this brazen sea contained about 13,000 gallons of water. That's pretty good sized. To put it in today's Something that you can understand. That is more than a large semi-truck tanker truck. You know, brings the gasoline to the gas stations. We've all seen those. They have a capacity of about 11,000 gallons. This one tanker truck could not haul all of the water that was in the molten sea. Now, not counting the weight of the brass... 13,000 gallons of water, 8 gallons or 8 pounds per gallon, you're getting up to over 100,000 pounds. 
That's heavy. But what was its purpose? Why have the molten sea, the brass sea, whatever you want to call it, why have this big object in front of or at the temple? It was for the ablution of the priest. Prior to the priest entering the sanctuary, it was a requirement that they washed, <coughs> washed up and cleaned up. So why do I relate the sea to the temple, to the sea around God's throne? The temple is a miniature model of heaven and God's throne room. We see in the temple the sea before we get to God's sanctuary, which is what God, what John saw in his vision. The biggest difference in the molten sea and the temple oftentimes was disturbed because of the washing of the priest. But in God's throne room, the sea was still and looked like a pane of glass. There was no, no, there was no more need for washing and cleansing. If you're standing in the throne room of God, you're there. You, you finally arrived. You've made it. So there was no use in having to wash in the, in the sea, the crystal sea. But remember the temple is a mirror image, if you will. So we're looking at the temple in a bigger version, in the original version. So the, the, the crystal sea is calm because you don't need to have any ablution or any reconciliation, if you will. There's no need to cleanse yourself. You are already cleansed enough and you are there because you are cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So there is no reason for that sea in the throne room of God to ever be disturbed. The four beast, full of eyes before and behind. Wow, now that would be an unusual image. If you can imagine these four beasts, and we're going to describe them in a little bit, and they've got eyes all over them. In front, back. You know, they always say mom's got eyes in the back of their head anyway. Well, these beasts did have eyes in the back of their heads. It represents God's all-knowing and all-seeing, his omniscient characteristic. Verse 7. The first beast was like a lion. Now, realize it says like a lion. It doesn't really say it's a lion, but John recognizes it as a lion. And the second beast, like a calf, Third beast had the face of a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. So you got the lion, the calf, the man, and the eagle. What does those represent? God doesn't do anything by happenstance or coincidence. God doesn't do anything by chance. Everything God does has a purpose, including you and I. We have a purpose. And if you don't know what your purpose is, you've never asked God. And 
if you've asked him and you don't still know, it's because you didn't listen. But one of your purposes is preaching and teaching. But God created these four. They wasn't there when God was. He created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. The four beasts look like a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. Why? Why these four? And have we seen them before? Let's answer the second part of that question first. Have we seen this before? Yes, we have in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1 and 10, we see as for the likeness of their faces, the four had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and they had the four the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. So we see man, lion, ox, eagle. Same thing John saw. John saw a young calf, or that's how he described it. Ezekiel describes it as an oxen, or the face of an ox. But why those four? Let's look at the images. A lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. In Matthew, we see Christ described as a lion. Matthew sees Christ as the lion of Judah. Matthew 1 and 1 says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Wait. How does that verse say that Matthew describes him as a lion? Go back to the beginning with me, to Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 and 10. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Jesus is the lion of Judah. Until Shiloh come. Shiloh is God. Or is Jesus. The face of the lion is one beast. The second beast. The calf. There are several connotations for the calf representing Christ. No, I'm not calling Jesus a cow. I'm saying the cow or the calf represents Christ. The fatted calf was often killed to provide reconciliation with others. Go back to the prodigal son. Once the prodigal son came back, his father required the servants to kill the fatted calf as a celebration and as an offering to the prodigal that he was accepted back into the family. An ox was also used as a servant to man. They didn't plow with horses back then. They plowed with oxen. The ox was how they plowed the fields and prepared the soul soil for seeding and planting. The Gospel of Mark shows us Christ the servant to man. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life of a ransom for many. And that was Mark 10 and 45. So we see Matthew saying he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We see Mark saying he's a servant. Oxen was a servant. The calf represents the servitude. All of the Gospels point these points out. So I'm not saying Christ was only portrayed as a servant in Mark or as the Lion of Judah in, in Matthew, but I'm using these as my illustration. 
Tradition teaches us that each of the Gospels are represented by the four beasts. If you read and study the four Gospels as a whole unit, you get a more complete picture of Christ than if you would only study one of the Gospels. The third beast was a man. In Luke, we have a more complete picture of Christ coming as a male baby, as a little boy. Being laid in a manger, and he was visited by the shepherds. Luke 2 and 7, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Some disagrees with the assignment of the various gospels to the various beasts. Some will say that Matthew is assigned the man and the lion is Luke. I don't really think it matters which one of the gospels we use. I think we are just using the gospels as a representation. Each one of the four gospels was written by an individual. They saw things their way, their, their own perspective. But when you put all four gospels together, you get the complete picture. Or, let's say it this way, you get a more complete picture. I don't think it matters which of the gospel is assigned a beast, just as we recognize that the four gospels are a more complete picture of Christ. But what about the eagle? We've talked about the calf, we've talked about the lion, we've talked about the man, the fourth beast was an eagle. Where does it show up? Well, if we have discussed Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then the eagle must be John. But how? Is Christ portrayed as an eagle exactly, or is it implied? Well, it's more implied in all of the four Gospels, okay? It's, it's not that John calls... Christ an eagle, and Matthew calls him the lion, and Mark calls him the calf. It's implied. It's an implication. John's gospel shows us more of Christ from a heavenly view than he does as Christ as a man. John's gospel is so different than the others. As a matter of fact, in the original workings of uh, what books to include into the uh, into what we call the bible there was a huge debate because john was so different do we include it john's gospel is very different it is lofty and heavenly where the others is more world focused an eagle flies it's one of the flies highest flying birds in the bird kingdom it also has some of the keenest eyesight. So we, we see the eagles flying higher. It is also, <coughs> excuse me, the only bird that hides in the sunlight because it has a, a design in his, it, its eyelids that it doesn't get blind by looking or flying straight into sunlight. So it hides up in the sunlight from its prey and to shield it from the eyes of what it's looking to hunt. So we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talking about these four beasts. We see these four beasts having eyes 
both forward and backwards. They're looking in forward in time. They're looking back in time. They're looking all over. They know they see it all. Four beasts, verse 8, had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. The wings had eyes. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. I'm telling you, this is the most bizarre vision I think John had, is these four beasts. The face of a lion, the face of a calf, the face of a man, the face of an eagle. They each had six wings. They have eyes backwards and forwards, frontwards and backwards, sideways. It's, it's an unusual image. But again, everything God does, everything God's created, including us, is done with a purpose. So there's, there's a purpose for the four beasts with the six wings. The four beasts each has six wings, three pairs. Isaiah 6 and 2 tells us, or gives us an image. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. Each one had six wings. With two of them he covered his face. With two of them he covered his feet. And with the two last wings is how they flew. These are the same beast that John saw. He's seeing the seraphims. But why cover the face? Why cover the feet? Why do that? Covering their face represents the humility before God and represents man as we humbly bow before the throne and of God. Moses was not allowed to see God's face. God placed him in a cleft or a crack of the rock, and then he covered or shielded Moses' eyes with his own hands. He moved his hand. God moved his hand as he went around him. So Moses saw the back of God. So the, the wings covering the face is the humility before God. The wings covering the feet represents the servanthood to God and the desire to be modest before the Lord. You see in a lot of scriptures where the feet are very important, you see that you know they take a shoe off to conduct business. You see where they uncover the feet, representing a significant, basically a marital contract. So the feet were very important in, in the biblical days. So the seraphims are covering their feet, representing modesty, which the world needs a lot more of, and also the servanthood, because, you know, you serve by moving. You serve by action. You serve by doing things. We just stopped at a restaurant and the server came up to the table. She didn't fly to the table. She walked to the table. So they're covering their feet representing the servanthood. 
And the pair of wings that the beast flew with was movement, action, and a desire to spread the gospel of God. The eyes that covered the beast sees everything just as God sees everything. Their job? To worship and praise God all the time, day and night. Yet with these beasts and the four and twenty elders around the throne, God can still hear us when we pray. We were created differently than the four and twenty elders and the seraphims. We were created to have free will. We was created so that when we worship God, it was because we wanted to worship God, not because that's why we was created. We was not created and forced to worship God. When we worship God, we want to worship God. When you don't want to worship God, you don't want to. He's not going to force you to worship him. He's not going to force you not to worship him. That is entirely up to you. That is free will. Sometimes free will gets in the way. But it's the only way to be. Because you see, God's got the four and twenty elders. He's got the seraphims. He's got the angels. He's got all of these creatures around him all the time worshiping him. But he wants us to worship him because we want to. The four and twenty elders, they don't have a choice. Seraphims, they don't have a choice. Angels, they don't have a choice. Wait, hold it, stop. But some of the angels fell with Satan. So how do you explain that? God created Satan. But he didn't create him where he was. There was a flaw found in Satan. God didn't create the flaw. God allowed it to happen. And I always envisioned Satan going by the crystal sea, looking at himself in the, in the reflection and going, wow, man, I'm good looking. Wow, I am, ex oh, wow, look at this. Everything's just perfect. And he started to believe the lies that he was telling himself. And he convinced those angels to believe the lies. And he decided that he was going to be bigger and badder than God. So he was going to overthrow the throne. How'd that work out for him? So God didn't create the flaw, but he allowed the flaw to be there. God didn't create the sin in our lives. He allows the sin to be here. God doesn't create the illnesses. He allows the illnesses. He allows the pain. He allows all of these things for a purpose and for a reason. Now, the reason why you're sick Maybe because you've done something in your past that's caused you to be sick. Maybe because you're sick because of genetics. So that's not your fault. That's not in your power to correct. But God allowed it to happen for a reason. And this is not in my notes anywhere. So I'm ad-libbing as I go up here. You are created... To, to want to worship God. But for whatever reason, he's allowed certain sicknesses, certain illnesses to come into this world. As a test, possibly. As a 
as a way to get your attention? Definitely. But it could also be for someone else, for someone around you. And you go, now how's that? Go with me back into Jesus' day. He's on the ship. He's asleep. The, the water, the waves are crashing in on the boat. The disciples are bailing just as fast as they can. But there's more water coming in than there's water going out. And they go wake up Christ and they say, don't you care that we perish? And he gets up and says, peace be still. We all know that. We've all read those scriptures. Those are ingrained in every one of us. But there is one version, there is one gospel that tells something different about that. Before they cast off, or just as they was casting off, think it's Mark. I don't have this in my notes, so I'm just going by what I believe. I believe it's Mark, though, that says that there were other ships with them. Jesus and the disciples weren't the only boat on the water that night. They weren't the only boat in the storm either. So when Jesus on his boat stood up and said, peace be still, the storm stopped for all boats. Not just his, but all boats. All boats. So maybe what you are going through, maybe your illness or whatever situation, is for those other boats in the water that's looking at you going, how are you going to handle this? And when you look up and praise God through it all, they get a blessing and they can get to the other side. So maybe that illness, maybe that problem, maybe that situation is for the other boats as well. That was a freebie. I won't charge you for that one. Verse 9 says, And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. As the beasts are in the air worshiping and praising God, the 24 elders are on the floor surrounding the throne worshiping him as well. He is surrounded by worship. But he still wants you to worship him. Because you want to. Four and twenty elders don't have a choice. The seraphims don't have a choice. You have a choice. What are you going to do? Verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Who are the 24 elders? As we discussed earlier in this chapter study, the 24 elders have always been around the throne. These elders, some believe, are the 12 disciples in the 12 tribes of Israel. However, John, one of the disciples, is looking on the scene. He clearly sees 24 elders, not 23. If he was looking on the scene, then how could he be also occupying a seat around the throne? 
God never changes. In Malachi 3 and 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If the Lord does not change, heaven does not change. The four and twenty elders have always been around the throne. Always. Before there was twelve tribes of Israel, before there was twelve disciples, there was the twenty-four elders. Go back with me to First Chronicles 24 and 4, King David. Love bringing up King David in my Revelation studies. King David divides the sons of Aaron into 24 divisions or courses. And there were more chief men found of the sons of Eleazar than the sons of Ithamar, and thus were they divided. Among the sons of Eleazar there were 16 chief men of the house of their fathers, and eight among the sons of Ithamar according to the house of their fathers. The King David did not do this because it was his idea. He did this because God put the idea in his head to divide up the priest into 24. Because we are to mirror heaven. The temple mirrors heaven. The four and 20 elders are the 24 courses of priest. We see this again in the birth of John the Baptist, his dad was of the course of one of these priests that King David had divided way back when. We see that the priest was now occupying the holy, the holy parts, the high priest. The son or the father of John the Baptist was at that time it was his duty to be the high priest at that time. So we see a mirror image on earth as it is in heaven. It's the way it's supposed to be. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That's what the four and twenty elders are saying. Their praise was the of praise to the King of Kings and the Creator of it all. They worship God for He is worthy of all our worship, praise, and adoration, and only Him, or He alone, is worthy of that praise. Even when Jesus walked on this earth, He gave praise and honor to God the Father. He didn't go after praise and honor for Himself. He always pointed back to God the Father. We are, again, supposed to mirror heaven. So when we give praise and honor, we should be giving it to God the Father. But we give it through God the Son because He is worthy of that. He made Himself worthy by dying on the cross of Calvary. And we cannot honor and worship God the Father through God the Son unless the Spirit draws us. So that's the Trinity all rolled up into one. We worship God the Father through God the Son at the drawing and the bidding, if you will, of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. 
We do not pray to Mother Mary. We do not pray to the apostles or the disciples. We don't pray to those because they are dead people and they can't help us. We pray through Jesus, who is alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father. We pray through him to God the Father. That's the way it's supposed to work. We'll stop there tonight. We'll take up in chapter 5 next week. Hopefully you got a gooder, gooder. There's a Tennessean word for you. Hopefully you got a better idea of what the throne room and what God looks like. Not so much that, you know, he's black, got black hair and blue eyes and no, he's, that's not, but you've got an image of his characteristics. You've got an image in your mind. Hopefully if you've listened to this week and last week, you've got an image of your, in your mind of what God is all about. Now we're going to move on into closer to the tribulation. Tribulation starts not in verse, or not in chapter five, but in chapter six, we get into the tribulation and we stay there pretty much through the rest of the book of Revelation. So we're looking, we've looked at what John saw immediately. We've looked at the past by going back into the Old Testament. We've made a, com a comparison between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now we're going to start looking forward. We'll start beginning to look forward even into our future as to what will take place, what will transcribe. We're not, I'm not going to tell you that it's going to go this way, this way, this way, this way. I'm not going to tell you who the Antichrist is because nobody knows. I can't tell you when the rapture takes place because only God the Father knows. He's not even told God the Son when the rapture takes place. God the Son will only know it when God the Father says, Son, go get your children. I'm tired of this mess. And we will be taken out in the twinkling of an eye. So from here on out, we're going to start beginning to look forward. We're going to start looking more into the future, our future as well. So I hope you'll stay with us through the rest of this uh, study. We've gotten through the first four chapters, and this is the 14th week. So we're flying, right? I don't want to go too fast, but I don't want to go too slow, so I don't want to bore you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the study that we're having. I thank you, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity, Lord, to come into your house, Lord, to, to see what John saw. Lord, to understand what John saw because you are opening up our eyes of understanding. Lord, we ask that you'll continue to open our eyes of understanding and that we get a clearer idea of what is to come, Lord, into our future, however long that may be. Lord, that not, not to scare us, but to get us ready, to get us prepared, to get us to tell in our friends and our loved ones and the stranger on the street. Lord, we ask that you'll give us those opportunities, Lord, and that you'll give us the desire to take those opportunities and move on them, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Next Thursday, we will be back, hopefully, good Lord's willing, and we will start with chapter 5. See you then.